For our New Testament passage today, let's pick up in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, Paul says, hey, I love you guys. You're my beloved. As you have always obeyed. Now, there's a key. This is an attitude of the people. This is an attitude of the whole church. He said, Paul, we've always obeyed your leadership. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Okay, so obedience must be in the presence and in the absence. My pen's working better. Have you noticed? We've done a bunch of changes. Let's see if it continues to work. He said, now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For or because. Now here's some keys that we want to talk about for a minute. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now let's just park on this for a minute. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that's a mouthful. We, we live in a world where nobody wants to be responsible for anything, it seems, even in the Christian world. And we have these, this new office in the ministry called the discipler. You don't notice we don't call anybody disciplers at COP. That, that is not an office of ministry. That is a man-made thing that's come along in these last few years. I'm a discipler, and my job is to help you grow in your salvation. Now, that's the job of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, okay? Now, these disciplers get into people's lives, and they say, you know, it's their job and their responsibility to, to help you with your salvation. Well, folks, I'm sorry, and I don't want to criticize anybody, but I do want you to understand something. Jesus died on the cross for you. You made a personal decision to repent of your sins and come to him and be saved. Now, from this point forward, we can teach you what the Bible says, but you must work out your own salvation. You have to take responsibility for your spiritual life. Let me say that again. You must take responsibility for your spiritual life. It, it, you, you can't have some discipler acting like, you know, Tita, always bugging you. Did you, did, you, did you brush your teeth? Did you wash your behind your ears? Uh, did you read your Bible today? Did you pray? How long did you pray? What did you pray about? What is God saying to you? What did God teach you? I mean, we, you can't have somebody in your face every day controlling your spiritual life. You must learn to take responsibility to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you. God has worked it in you, perfecting the good work you began in your life. Now you need to work with God in a partnership with God in your spiritual growth and not be dependent on everybody else. Yes, you're in church every week. Yes, you're in a connect group. Yeah, all of these things are biblical things to be doing, but you don't need a spiritual yaya. Okay, if you have to have a spiritual yaya called a discipler controlling you and you confess your sins to them every week, they're controlling you. And that's not what Christianity is all about. They act like, you know, when you tell them, tell people, no, you shouldn't go to, to the, the, the clubs, that that's being controlling. No, what's controlling is when somebody sits down with you every week and says, have you prayed today? Confess your sins to me. Folks, that's controlling and we don't need spiritual yayas. God is working in your life. 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I like another translation for that. Creating the desire and the ability to do his will. Now, th this is a great truth you need to understand about the will of God. The will of God comes flows from two things in your life. It flows from desire and it flows from ability. There are people that tell me, oh, Pastor Summerall, God, God wants me to be a great scientist. Excuse me, you can't even pass calculus. If you don't have the ability, you know, you might be a great painter. You, you might be a great educator. You, you might, forgive me, you might be a great pastor. But if you can't do calculus and you can't do algebra and geometry and, and you can't run numbers, you're not going to be a great scientist. You can't do the equations. There are people that come to me, Pastor Summerall, I'm going to be a pastor. But you can't speak. You can't preach. See, God, it takes desire and ability for God's will. Now he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. All things. I looked at a young pastor one time, and he was always grumbling about visitation. I said, how can you grumble about spending time with people? Do all things without grumbling and without questioning. Just learn, learn, to, learn to go along. Learn to fit in. Notice he said, you've always obeyed in my presence and much more in my absence. He said, would you just stop the grumbling and the questioning? Why? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Wow. So this is our generation. So think about it. My generation is number one crooked and my generation is twisted. And I am to shine like lights in the world. I am to shine like a star in the darkness. That's what God tells each of us. When you look around the world right now, we live in a crooked and twisted generation. And we should shine like stars in the night. Holding fast to the word of life. Ah, not holding fast to theology books. Holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So in other words, Paul said, listen, there's going to come a day when we're all going to stand before God. And he said, I want to be proud. I want to look around and see you've made it to heaven, that you're there before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, one of the most important things I just read you was holding fast to the word of life. I, I often get into debates with young theologians who have been to Bible school and seminary. And it was the same debate we had when I was young and I was in Bible school. Everybody wants to study theology and not study the Bible. Now, I had two old godly professors, Dr. Redden and Dr. Harris, and they were, we're going to study the Bible, okay? But then we had other professors, they didn't want to study the Bible, they wanted to study what's called biblical theology, which is books about the Bible. And as, as I teach young pastors today, you know, quoting your theologians and quoting your theology books is not going to change anybody's life. Because those words have no life in them. The word has life in it. One, one young lady who had graduated from a big seminary in the United States, she told me, God, you know, my professors always taught me not to bore people with the Bible. You don't bore people with life. Life changes people. Hold fast to the word of life. This is why you've never heard me say, for morning devotions, you can read a book. 
don't you ever read one of my books or don't you read one of Uncle Lester's books or Brother John's book or Brother Dag's book. Don't you ever read one of those books for your devotions. Read the Bible. That's the word of life. Even if I am about to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. So Paul said, listen, it's about time for me to go to heaven. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He said, you, sh you should be happy that I'm reaching the end of my course and I'm a drink offering poured out upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Your faith is an offering to God. Wow. Likewise, this is hard not to preach through, all right? Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. Paul said, <laughs> I want to hear about you. I, I enjoy hearing how well you're doing. For I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned about your welfare. They all seek their own interest, not those of Christ. But now I want you to begin to look here at Timothy for a minute. Paul says, of all these preachers I've trained, I've just got this one guy with me right now who really cares about the people. Wow. He said they're all caring about their own interest, their own power, their own money. They don't care about the people. He said they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine how sad that must be? Paul's nearing the end of his life, and he looks around and he sees all these preachers around the world. Now, when he first started, there was almost no preachers. I mean, there were the apostles, there was him, there's a few others. There was almost none. And now, you know, 30 plus years later, 40 years later, he's, he's nearing the end of his life. And he looks at this multitude of preachers out there and he goes, they just don't make them like they used to. He, he says, they, all they care about is their own selfish interest. They don't care about the people's welfare anymore. Now, young pastor, if you're listening to me today, you can never go wrong putting the needs of the people first. Genuinely being concerned about the people. But you know Timothy's proven worth. Now, you know what? There are sons in the faith that have proven worth. You know, you're, not just, you're not guessing anymore, okay? This is proven worth. You know, I look around at people that have walked with me all through the years, like Pastor Manalo. Pastor Pogadora, Pastor Marlon, Pastor Rose, Pastor Alani. You, you look at these people that have walked with us, Pastora Babes, proven worth. You say, well, Pastor Summer, you know, I know that they have faults. You know what? So do I. But they have proven worth. In the hardest times throughout the years, those sons and daughters in the faith have stood and cared for the people. I can remember years, many years ago, when we were in so heavily in debt, we didn't even get salaries. Every one of those people I just mentioned never complained, never said a word. We just tightened our belts up again. Now, God's been good to them now, but you know what? Proven worth. Timothy's proven worth. He said, you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Now, that's how a son acts. A son doesn't walk away from the father. A son serves with the father. All right, so sons serve with the father. Sons don't walk off. That's called a prodigal son. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly 
I myself will also I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So these people had sent Epaphroditus to help take care of Paul. He said, I, I want to send Epaphroditus back to you now. He said, now the reason I want to send Epaphroditus back to you, now he's done a great job taking care of me, he's been your messenger, he's cared for me, but he said, for he has a longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, now listen, listen to the heart of this young man of God, Epaphroditus. He longs for the people in the church of Philippi. And he was distressed because they were worried about him. <laughs> he didn't feel complimented that they were worried about him. See, this is a leader's heart. This is a leader's heart. He said he was distressed because you had heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. All right, so Christians do get sick. Now, Jesus is our healer, but you know there, there are people that act like if you're serving God, you'll never get sick, you'll never have a problem, and they put this big guilt curse on Christians so that they won't come for prayer. But the Bible says, you know, if you're sick, let them call for the elders of the church and they'll anoint you with oil. Now, notice, if somebody's sick, so Christians and Christian leaders do get sick. And, and again, I bring this up because, you know, I had a pastor not too long ago call me and say, Pastor Summerall, what do you think of this preacher? And he called the name of a preacher. And he said, you know, he doesn't even have enough faith for his own healing. He went to the doctor and, you know, he had a surgery. And, you know, Pastor Summerall, that man doesn't even have faith. How can, how can he pray for anybody? He has no right to be a pastor. And I, after listening to the guy for a few minutes, because it took me a little while to catch on, because I'd never heard anything quite that audacious. Finally, I just said, young man, I've had surgery. I had my eyes fixed. I've had surgery. My wife has had surgery. I said, now, you know, you're young right now, and you're strong, and you're healthy. But I said, you know what? One day, <laughs> make your words sweet, because one day you're going to eat them. Don't be putting all this guilt trip on people in your church. He said, you know, Epaphroditus was ill even near death. But notice, God had mercy. <laughs> and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul said, I love this guy. I don't want to see him die. But notice, healing flows from mercy. <laughs> there was a woman evangelist back in the 60s. She was very close to Sister Beth's pastors. Her name was Catherine Kuhlman. And she always used to talk about healings as mercy healings. And you know what? I think that revelation has been lost on the church today. Because now you hear people say, well, I had faith in God healed me. You know what? Every healing flows from mercy. Here's Epaphroditus, great man of faith. With Paul, a great man of faith. And Paul still says, God had mercy on him and healed him. <laughs> he said, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice, and seeing him again, that he may be less anxious, that I may be less anxious. Paul said, you know, I'm a little worried about all of this and you, you guys not being together, so I want him back with you. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, 
risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service for me. Paul said, you know, this guy almost died bringing the help that you sent to me. He said, you couldn't bring it, so he brought it. He said, there was nothing lacking in your gift, but able to get it to me, that was the service of it. He said, he, he risked his life to do this. He almost died for the work of Christ. And Paul said, honor such men. Now it amazes me today. We honor people who talk like they've got it all together. We honor people who have the great marketing campaign. We honor what looks like success. Looks like success. But we don't honor these men of sacrifice. Now, brothers and sisters, you know what? We've got the wrong idea of the ministry. The ministry is not entertainment and flash and marketing. The ministry is about sacrifice. Honor such men. Don't, don't give honor to these fancy, flashy people. Honor men who give their life for the work, who risk their life for the work. Honor people like that. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship, and then Sister Bev's coming. If you want more happy than your heart will hold, if you want to stand tall and if the truth were told, take whatever you have and give it away. But tonight, I've learned it's true what my Lola John used to say. Nothing's quite as good until you give it away. If you want more happy than your heart will hold, if you want to stand taller in the truth we're told,
Welcome back to Isaiah and as we say, Isaiah, <laughs> Isaiah, Isaiah, and we are today going to be reading a long passage because three chapters, 62, 63, 64, we'll see how we can get through three chapters today of Isaiah. So let's get right into it with chapter 62. You can open your Bibles and follow along, and I am obviously reading from the ESV. So hopefully your version will be ESV or almost exactly like that, but anyway, you can follow along. Isaiah chapter 62, we start off with God speaking, because it says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence. So who's the I? Could be Isaiah. More likely it is God speaking because of the things that are being said as follows. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. So God is saying the nations are going to look at Israel, Jerusalem, specifically the city, and go, wow. They serve a great God, and they themselves are walking with God. They're righteous, and it's going to be a witness to the nations. And you shall be called by a new name. There are in this chapter, <laughs> and in the chapters to come, some new names. You know, we sing, um, there is a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Yeah, you know, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, <laughs> it says that we will be given a white stone for all of those who overcome. When we get to heaven, when we are there, we will be given a white stone, and there's a new name written on it for us that no one knows except the person who receives it. When I read that, it kind of reminds me of a very fun camp activity when we are, you know, finding your groups and your group name is written down and then you have to find other people with that same name. It sounds like a fun camp activity, but this is something that God will give us a new name and it will be written and it will be given by him and written on this white stone. How precious. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Well, we have Jacob who got turned into Israel, right? We got different people who received new names in scripture, but we will see some of those new names coming up. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. How do you like that to start off your day today? No matter, <laughs> you might be going through life today with your mask on and your shield on and maybe depending on where you are, a PPE on and you're all bundled up. You just remember, I am a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord <laughs> That's how God sees you. You might be all bundled up like a teddy bear, but you are a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal 
diadem in the hand of your God. You are beautiful to God. <laughs> Did you know that? Have you got that so far? You are beautiful to God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. So that's one of their previous names, Jerusalem, that people would call them forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. There's another one. So we're getting rid of forsaken. <laughs> we're getting rid of desolate. You know what? People will label you with all kinds of labels, won't they? They'll label you liar. They'll label you piggy piggy. You're fat. You're chubby. They, they will label you lazy. They'll, they will label you. Get rid of those. God wants to give you a new name. <laughs> well, they were forsaken. Out goes forsaken. They were being called desolate. Out goes desolate. You shall no more be called that, but you shall be called my delight is in her. Oh, that's nice. The Hebrew there, that name is Hepzibah. And I don't know about you, I do know somebody, in fact, I think I know two girls named Hepzibah. That is a name that people are called, but wow, what a nice meaning. It means my delight is in her. And your land will be called married. Wow, you're going to get called Mrs. That word married is Beulah. There's, I remember when growing up, and you might remember this, that there's an old hymn, Oh, Beulah land, oh, Beulah land. It's talking about this time of the change that's coming for Israel, especially for the city of Jerusalem. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. So they're coming from all over the world and coming back and being there in the land. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. Well, that's what watchmen do, right? They stand up on the wall and they cry out when they see something or they, they hear something. There's something they want you to be knowing about. They'll cry out, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Okay, as watchmen standing on the walls, making people aware, they're putting the Lord in remembrance. He says, Put the Lord in remembrance. Take no rest. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem. So all these promises that he has been giving in all these prophecies of Isaiah, just keep persevering and keep announcing and keep praying. Well, first of all, that's what watchmen do. And secondly, for us, we are to put the Lord in remembrance of his word when we pray. We say we pray the word. So if we want a certain request from the Lord, we dig into the scripture and we find out, is this something that is according to the will of God? Is this something that people received from him? Then we claim that scripture in our prayers. Amen. It says we should 
give him no rest. We pray without ceasing until he establishes Jerusalem. We pray until the answer is seen. We keep on praying. We don't just pray a little prayer and then go our way. We keep on praying. We pray without ceasing and we pray the word. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine, for which you have labored. For those who garner it shall eat it, and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the people. So these two times, again, go through, go through, build up, build up. Isaiah loves double imperatives, doesn't he? It means there's an urgency here. There's an urgency. Go through, prepare the way for the people, clear the highway. You know that highway in the book of Isaiah, that way of redemption, that way of holiness. Clear it of stones, build it up, prepare it. So in other words, number one, get yourself ready. Get yourself right with God and get yourself ready for his coming. And number two, make others ready as well. That's what we're here on this earth for, isn't it? Lift up a signal or a banner, wave it over the peoples. In other words, you're drawing attention. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. So this is what we say when we evangelize. Behold, salvation comes. Amen. And his recompense before him. Aha. Uh -huh. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Four more names. This chapter is a chapter of new names written down in glory. <laughs> new names that God is giving. I wonder what new name God will give you. What new name would you like? How would you like to be known? Well, God will give you a new name based on how he sees you. Not necessarily on how you see yourself, but on how he sees you and the great things you will do for him. Amen. Chapter 63. Chapter 63 starts off with two questions. And these questions have to do with a day of vengeance. Remember we said when Jesus read the book of Isaiah in the sanctuary, in the temple, he read only until the day of the, the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he talked to them. And he said, now this is fulfilled in your ear. But the very next part, as we read in the book of Isaiah, which Jesus stopped at, he didn't read, and the day of God's vengeance. Well, we are going to read some scriptures now in chapter 63, which describe the Lord, but it describes him when he comes in vengeance to exact punishment on his enemies. So we're going to see the Lord as powerful, splendid to see, and we're going to see him in a certain color, 
garment, and we'll see why. The first question, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Now here's the second question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? So in other words, if you've got all those grapes and you're treading them out and they used to do that in their bare feet, right? Treading out those grapes and pressing them to make the fresh wine or the grape juice. Why? Why does it look like he came from the wine press? Because his garments were red. In other words, you know, as much as I like red, and I love red garments, in this case, they were red because of the blood of the enemies that had been slain. So in this case, it's red, and he was powerful and majestic, but it's not a good reason why it was red. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now, starting in verse 7 of this chapter, chapter 63, <laughs> here comes another one of Isaiah's praise moments. We have praise moments every night in our online service, right? Isaiah had praise moments where he burst into praise before the Lord. Starting in verse 7, we have one of Isaiah's praise moments. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and that the great goodness and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Did you know that it grieves the Holy Spirit when we're not in obedience to God? When we as believers were supposed to be reading the word, living the word, when we don't, that the Holy Spirit is grieved? I don't ever want to grieve the Lord. I don't ever want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But this is what happened. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? You know, when I read verses like this, 
I'm remembering the revival days when the Holy Spirit was flowing in rivers and rivers among us, and it's so beautiful. But you know what? I don't want ever to look back on revival days and wonder, where is that God? And it just reminds me of people that I know who have sought out greener pastures, shall we say, gone elsewhere. And then later on, as the years go by, I've been talking with some of these people. They look back on their days of fervently serving the Lord in their ministries, and they say, you know, Sister Bev, my best days are behind me. Oh, it does not have to be that way. It does not have to be that ever you will look back in your life and say, oh, I remember when the Holy Spirit moved among us. Oh, I remember I used to be an AIM youth leader on the campus. Oh, I remember I used to be an usher. Oh, I remember I was serving the Lord in the choir and we were having evangelism and outreaches. It doesn't have to be that you look back. It should always be that the path of the righteous is brighter and brighter till that full day, that day when we see Jesus face to face, eye to eye, when we look upon his face and worship him. That's the brightest day of all. But until then, our days are supposed to get brighter. We're not supposed to look back at the brightest days behind us. But that's what was happening here. Where is he? who put the, in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses and divided the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make a for yourself, a glorious name. And then, starting in verse 15, there's this prayer. And it's like, as from time to time, the people of God would remember, oh yeah, I remember God was moving among us. Oh yeah, I remember. And so when they remembered God, then they would turn to him and he would deliver them. Now, the remnant is praying. This remnant that's still there, praying that God will help them. And it just kind of reminds me of the prayer of a backslider. And, you know, sometimes the backslider doesn't really understand God or his ways or how God wants to move in his life. But it's the prayer of the remnant as they're looking to God for help. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? <laughs> Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage." Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom 
you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. How sad, how sad this prayer of these backsliders who are now looking to God like, God, can you help us? May you and your children never, ever have to say these words like we have become like people who never had God in our lives. Wow, what a sad thing to say. Like those who were not called by your name. Heart-wrenching. May you and your children never come to that point in your life. But may you always remember to remember the Lord. May you always choose to walk in his ways. May you always read the word of God. May you always walk in the blessing of God. Amen. Amen. It does not have to be the way that it is for these people in this particular chapter. It doesn't have to be that way for you. It should not be that way. But we are the people who remember the Lord our God. And we're going to learn lessons from some of these people. We're going to learn them by reading their lessons rather than having to learn for ourselves the hard way. Amen. Now, chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Now, here's a beautiful verse. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, I have seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. <laughs> you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Oh, from of old, who has heard of this? That God acts on behalf of his people. The I am, the mighty one, the holy one, the most high, acts and works on our behalf. Who has heard such a thing? We have, because that's our God. That is how God is for us. We know that. We know the Lord and we expect to walk this way when we are walking with him. And it says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. The NIV says, who gladly do right. ESV, who joyfully works righteousness. That's much more maybe poetic, and, and if you can look at it both ways. Sometimes you hear people pray, Lord, meet us here tonight. Lord, meet us here tonight. Fill this room with your presence. Meet us here tonight. Okay, he meets those who joyfully do right. All right, so be glad to do what is right in this life. Don't find it a duty to do God's will or to do God's word. Joyfully do righteousness. Remember him in all our ways, and he will meet with us. Wow. Behold, you were angry and we sinned, and in our sins, we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? 
We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Yep, that's exactly what sin will do. It will take you, it will blow you off course. It will take you on the wrong path. Until, verse 7, there's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, <laughs> I told you I love the but now of God, and you should love the but now as well, because when you see but now, whatever has been the situation, it's going to get turned around as people are resubmitting themselves to the Lord. Lord, we were so sinful. You know what? That's part of repentance, acknowledging that you have sinned, right? So when you say, God, we, I've been so sinful, that's actually a good thing to say if you've been sinful because it's the first step in renewing your relationship with him. They were resurrendering themselves now to the hand and to the will of their loving father. So how did they say it? But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. See, Lord, I'm resurrendering myself to your hands because I know that's the best place to be. Lord, whatever you want for me, whatever your hands want to make of me, that's the best. We should pray that. In fact, we should pray that often, right? Resurrendering ourselves. Lord, I'm the clay. You're my potter. Do something good with me, Lord. Amen. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Well, we did it. We went through three chapters today. Interesting chapters, right? Not judgment against the nations, but a journey that the people of Israel, God's people, had been on, turning away from him, trying to come back to him, but maybe not doing it so good, and then surrendering finally to him, saying, Lord, I want to be that lump of clay in your hands. You be my potter. I'll be your clay. And I want you to do something beautiful with me. That is the end of our reading for today. And tomorrow, it's going to be our last day in Isaiah. And after all this drama and all this poetry and all this prophecy and all this beautiful praise that Isaiah has written, don't you want to just really know how he wraps it up, <laughs> how it all ends? That's for tomorrow's 
devotions for now thank you for joining us for our morning devotions it's such a pleasure to be with you as we study the word of god together and i hope we will see you tonight in our cop online evening service god bless